happy place. One, two, three, four, five. And count to five, it's pretty good to be alive. That it's great to be alive. When you play in records with John. Hey, all you lucky listeners out there in Earbudland, and welcome to another exciting episode of Playing Records with John. I'm your host, John, and my guest this time, I'm so pleased to say, is uh, the one and only Otis Ball of Otis Ball and the Chains. Now, Otis released an album called I'm Gonna Love You Till I Don't in 1989, and that was on Bar None Records, which made him label mates with two of my favorite artists from that time, and still, Freddie Johnston and They Might Be Giants. And he actually was associated with both of those bands. So, you know, it was just kind of one of those things where I really dug his vibe. And then I did hear years later that he recorded another album, a follow-up to I'm Gonna Love You Till I Don't, that was not released. And then I saw after that that it actually was available in different ways online, like Otis has posted the MP3s. And right now he keeps an exhaustive uh, YouTube channel with all of his videos and, and songs on it. So I'll tell you up top, you can just go to YouTube, search for Otis Ball and find his channel and yeah you'll see a a lot of material everything we're going to talk about today and more is on there um but i don't know i I approached otis online about doing a a podcast about his music and he sort of said he was less interested in talking about the album because he's done that already he said he was more interested in talking about the the music he made before and after that and also highlighting the people that he worked with along the way. And as a person who feels uh, that I have been, to use Otis's words, kind of propped up by the musicians that I've worked with over the years, I thought that was a really cool concept. And um, so that's what you get. Uh, it's Otis, Otis Ball on a, on a journey of gratitude, <laughs> talking about the musicians he's worked with. And uh, we're going to hear some, some cool samples from his work along the way, too. So um, without any further ado, this is Otis. Tell me you didn't say that. Can you dig it, this Visiting the grandparents in summer, either 77 or 78, just entering high school, my pops went up to the attic and found his old snare drum from when he was in marching band, brought it down, took it back home with us. And I just started beating the shit out of that thing. And geez, I don't know, four or five months later was my birthday. And I woke up and goddamn, if they didn't buy me a fucking drum kit. Uh, so for the next couple years, I just beat the hell out of those drums. I was never very good, but I also realized, oh, shit, I'm stuck all the way in the back. I want to be up front. So they bought me a guitar. And how old were you when you got the guitar, do you think? Probably sophomore year of high school, 14-ish. I also, just when I got the drums, met at the school bus stop a neighbor kid, Todd Keppel, who played bass. And, and so the two of us became a band. I love that that idea when you're early on, especially. But I think I carry that through to, to this day. If I meet someone and I find out they do something creative or cool, somehow in my mind, I'm like, 
how can I how can I work with them or what can we do? Let's let's put on a show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But especially then, if you played guitar and you met someone who played keyboards, or if you met a drummer, I mean, let alone if anyone was good, but if you just met somebody who did it or could let you could practice in their basement or whatever little thing it was, it was like that's another piece of the pie here. <laughs> We're doing it, folks. You know. Well, well, that leads us to. The, the next uh, piece of the puzzle, sophomore year high school, Spanish class. Otis Ball, they, everyone was seated alphabetically. Right behind me was Steve Blunt, who became my uh, a co-conspirator guitar player for the next seven, eight years, something like that. And, and, and his buddy from the next town over that he knew from church was uh, Glenn Killer Donaldson who to this day still plays bass with me. That's great. Summer of 1985, Killer and myself moved to DeKalb, Illinois, home of Northern Illinois University. We rented a house and Doug Killer and I formed the first version of Otis Ball and the Chains. Steve, Steve was working at uh, the Illinois Math and Science Academy in Aurora, Illinois, which was, eh, I don't know, 25, 30 minute drive away and would come out when he could. And uh, we played a bunch of shows. There's a parallel thing going on with you, which is definitely that you you were recording and you were multi-tracking and doing things like that when as soon as you got the chance. And you actually told me a little story about kind of the technology that, that gave you that inspiration. Like not long after I started playing guitar, um, my pops came home with uh, a Japanese double cassette deck that had an audio input. Like his friend had bought it in Japan. It, it was a brand new thing at this point. And I immediately figured out that while you're dubbing a cassette, you can also plug into the audio input and record on top of what you're dubbing. And I realized, I have a multi-track recorder here. It's like an atom bomb going off in your head if you're like a creative, musical-minded kid. Yes, exactly. I worked uh, through high school. I saved my money. And uh, I bought a Radio Shack Tandy Mini Mug, which I also realized I could, I could set it up to do a very basic drum machine. It was just dunch, 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 dunch. But that was all I needed. And at that point, I had my guitar. I, I had this synthesizer that could fake a drum machine, and I was off to the races. By the time I got to DeKalb in 85, I had purchased one of the early Tascam four-track recorders, uh, uh, cassette recorders, and, and that blew everything open. Yes. I, uh, you know, I got a, a digital delay, which, uh, went, oh, uh, that actually leads us into our uh, first recording, Jamaican Vacation.
was never a big reggae fan, but uh, uh, boy, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, some of the guys in my band were huge reggae ska fans. When I got my digital delay, I just, well, let's see what this baby can do. <laughs> let's take it out on the track. There is no piece of paper. I, I didn't sit down and write this song. I plugged my digital delay in. I plugged the drum machine into it. Then I plugged uh, my guitar into it. Then I plugged my vocals into it. Like everything was just, everything about this song was, let's play with my new toy. That is how Jamaican Vacation was created. Everything was doing it for the sake of doing it. I, I loved the process, which is bringing us to the next track I sent you, Thanksgiving. Which is hilarious, by the way. <laughs> okay, well, I, it's not my song, that, but that's the story. I believe it was March 1987, uh, living in DeKalb, and we were booked on a show with two bands from Madison, Wisconsin, my cousin Kenny and Kissy Fish. And the, th the three bands, the three of us, became the best of friends. We just all fell in love with each other immediately. And this recording is Kissy Fish's song, Thanksgiving. Well, you see, Uncle Ray wasn't like all those other turkeys. No, while they'd be gobbling around the yard, playing turkey games, he'd be following the damn dog around, trying to sniff his butt. Well, the dog didn't seem to mind, so no one said anything. Love them. 
love this song. Just just for shits and giggles, I plugged into my uh, Tascam four track recorder and said, "Ah, I'm, I'm gonna do their song," and this is it. See, Uncle Ray went on tour that year. Yeah, he was blowing for the big bands. But you know, people are asking Ray, "How long do you think this will last?" Uncle Ray smiled and said, "Gonna blow this thing till the day I die." I got signed to a record contract and uh, was told I had to move out to uh, New York City, New Jersey, uh, uh, if I wanted to make the album. And I wanted to make the album, so I did. The first band I had out there was uh, Alan Bozzozzi on drums. Alan Bozzozzi is a great drummer. He is. He is. Uh, uh, Tom Shad on bass and Andy Burton on keyboards. A great guy, great keyboard player. And Steve Blunt from back in the days actually had moved out uh, for school for, at, at this period, he was doing uh, master's work, I think. So uh, sometimes it was just me, Alan, and Tom as a three-piece. Um, we also had, uh, for a few shows, and she's on the record, Lisa Papineau on vocals. There was one show... I, I don't know how or why we were asked to open for Pop Will Eat Itself. But uh, my brother at the time was working at uh, Marvel Comics. And for that show, he showed up backstage with this giant leather satchel. And out of it, he pulled an official Marvel Comics Spider-Man outfit. <laughs> and he said, hey... <laughs> <laughs> so so I went out on stage for the first number wearing a, a goddamn Spider-Man outfit. <laughs> Unfortunately, no pictures, no recordings. It, it's, to this day, it kills me. Oh, uh, that's a bummer. I, I, I sometimes think about those times where I'm glad in the moment when something happens that nobody got pictures or film of something that happened. But 20 years later, you go, I kind of wish someone did get a picture of that. <laughs> you oh, know? I've, I've never been embarrassed about uh, anything, even even if I don't like it. I, I'm, I'm not precious about my recordings. Well, it's awesome to have that feeling because it helps you move forward and just do stuff. For, for me, they're, they're all their own moments. You know, they are yeah. what they are. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, 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 I'm very lucky to have been able to record both audio and video as much as I have, and and still and still uh, uh, have them all to to share with the world. It kind of keeps the story straight for yourself too, to have it, to have it there. Too. Oh, uh, that is that is very true. I'll I'll tell you, um, there are a number of shows that weren't recorded and uh, uh i have very very little memory of some of them even existing like there have been shows that i didn't think happened and then people came up with a poster or something I'm like oh all right uh <laughs> but the shows that are recorded i remember like they were yesterday so that band that recorded the album did you tour to support that we didn't tour we played i don't know a dozen 18 shows and recorded the album really good guys and really good players exceptional players but i, I was looking for a different direction 
Um, and, and it's nothing on them because really they, they replicated my demos, but I wanted to open up my, my sound both live and in the studio at that point. That's when I found Rich Grula and Chris Butler, all love and props to everyone else before them. But to this day, they remain my favorite backup band of all time. Very unfortunately, we only recorded, we only got to record one song, which is Laugh at Me uh, by Sonny Bono. playing with um, another Barnon artist, Freddie Johnston at the time, and we were on some shows together. So uh, uh, there was a show uh, in Hoboken, must have been very late 88 or very early 89. And I had this goofy idea, and I, I'm pretty sure this was one of the shows with uh, Andy Burton on keyboard. So we were a four piece that night. I came up with this goofy idea that I'll come out like wearing a tuxedo and, and we'll pretend we're like a Vegas uh, show band, like do, 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 Hey, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, then I had the bass player uh, accidentally fake hit me in the head and I'd have a concussion and I take off the tuxedo and I had my Otis ball outfit underneath <laughs> just some, some crazy nutty outfit and we'd go on with the show and people loved it. Everyone went crazy. And specifically Chris Butler came up to me after the show and said, that was amazing. I loved that. That was so much fun. And then the two people from the record label I was on pulled me aside and said, what did you do? You can never do that again. 
that that was totally unacceptable. <laughs> and I, and I, I think that was both the night Chris Butler decided he wanted to play drums for me and the night I realized, oh, this record label doesn't get me at all. What a, a vote of confidence it is for the songwriter, leader of the band, The Waitresses, to, to say, can I play drums for you? Yeah, it's a great compliment. I, I, it's beyond. I, I, Rich Grula as well. Um, not only a great bass player, but uh, a great friend, just a good guy. Uh, and and as I said, Rich and Chris had worked together on uh, a few projects uh, before, so they were familiar with each other. But uh, the three of us together, it it really was magic. And uh, uh, I have every reason to assume that magic still exists. We were specifically asked uh, if we would like to contribute to a Sonny Bono tribute album. And I said, fuck yeah. <laughs> I'm a huge Sonny and Cher fan. Huge. I, I still consider it a thrill today that not only was I asked to contribute to a Sonny Bono tribute record, but that he was sent a copy of the album and he listened to it. I told George Burns, cigars are the way to go, man. Way back when he was nobody. And he believed me. What a fool. Laugh at me is us in the studio. The monkeys. Mike Nesmith just may be the one. That's us live. often pull songs out of our asses, cover songs out of our asses, but there were some that were set mainstays where we made them our own. And I think this is the best example of the songs we made our own. I, I, I just sent this to uh, some uh, friends recently, and uh, 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 Ryan of Kissy Fish, who we mentioned earlier, 
immediately recognized the drum opening, That's which great. is which we stole from the band Big Country. <laughs> <laughs> like we 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 pieced this song together over time, um, both in rehearsals and on stage. It became uh, one of our live set pieces. Uh, to this day, I, I consider it uh, as much one of this band's songs as any of the originals we played. Like we really, we really beat the shit out of this one until we owned it. But Butler and Grula were uh, not only as fearless as as myself, they were also 10 times more competent than me. As we are recording this on Valentine's Day, I am sending my Valentines out to all my bands, but particularly these two guys. I, I broke up the Butler Grula band very unfortunately. I've, I've, I've spoken with both of them about how and why that happened and, and apologized to both of them. It was a, it was a serious mistake on my part. Uh, I got together with the rhythm section from the band Das Damen and recorded a second album. And again, it should have been Butler and Grula I did it with. There's a lot more behind the scenes stories going on that uh, I don't care to get into because I, I, I want to keep this positive. <laughs> <laughs> but the Das Damen guys uh, were friends and, and good players. And we recorded a second album that uh, uh, was never released. Uh, it's all on YouTube. You can look up o o Otis Ball favorite love songs. It's, it's all online. Um, but uh, similar to uh, the Sonny Bono cover, uh, I was asked to do a Banana Splits tribute. <laughs> So this is Lyle Heisen on drums, Dave Motamid on bass, and uh, Andy Luck from Sugar Shack. I think it was Sugar Shack. Our, our good buddy Fred. Oh, Fred had 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 a uh, 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 I guess it was an eight-track studio in Hoboken, and uh, so we went in there and did the 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 splits tribute. Never came out, but boy, I had the 
best time doing this song. Yeah, it's great. And, 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 and John Flansburg from They Might Be Giants stole my cover idea. I, I I worked with They Might Be Giants on and off for about a year and a half. And uh, uh, I was their merchandise guy and I was their uh, driver and personal handler. Uh, and and part of that was I would I, I was kind of in charge of the cassette deck in in our touring vehicles. <laughs> so I may have even played them my version. That thief. Yeah, fucker. <laughs> oh, he did. He did steal one of my uh, guitar pedals. One of the memories that sticks in my mind about the night that I saw you play, you were accompanying uh, Freddie Johnston at the at the Georgia Theater in Athens. Oh, right, 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 right. So I remember thinking, oh, this is cool to see to see they might be giants as in their duo form, but also Freddie Johnston, who I later would see play, like it was him in a very raw form too. And uh, Can You Fly was just about to come out. So he was about to become the name on everybody's lips. Freddie was asked to open and he needed a second guitarist. And I'm positive that uh, like his two go-to guys weren't available which which, uh, uh, is why he called me. I was was always Freddie's third or fourth choice and believe me i understood why it's good company (laughs) freedy had freedy had really great guitar players in his phone book when he couldn't get them he would call me and i was fortunate to get that call more often than i deserved He's one of my all-time favorite songwriters. Well, honestly, our conversations leading up to this got me thinking about it, and I dipped back into Can You Fly? And I was like, yep, it really does, like, it makes sense that someone's, like, career was launched on, you know, sometimes you hear an album and you go, that's it right there. Like, that that totally makes sense that that, like, sprung him forward into sort of, you know, at least a period where he was was kind of a, a household name, you know, amongst people who were following what was going on. I put Can You Fly in the ballpark of pet sounds as one of the all-time great albums just just a classic like song for song and it tells a story and it's got this depth behind it yes yes but it also has this amazingly unique voice which i think the first time you hear it and a lot of the songwriters and singers that i love and a lot of the people we've been mentioning they have those voices it's like you either love them or you don't and when you love them it's like man that's great and his voice is one that you know part of the emotional power of his music is the quality of his voice agreed uh a, a, a voice like a Neil Young or an Elvis Costello, where the second you hear it, you know exactly who it is. Yep. So, I mean, any other memories of uh, just playing with him or collaborating with him that, that seem worth uh, mentioning? <laughs> None I will tell in public. <laughs> Out of respect for Freedy. <laughs> I love I love Freedy. Was just emailing him this morning. Love that guy. I remember after the show, hanging out by the merch table, talking to Freddy Johnston and you came out and Flansburg came out. And I remember him saying something about like, 
your tasty guitar tones and he was trying to look over your shoulder and see what what kind of settings you had on your pedal or whatever so i that has always stuck in my mind i remember the show i don't remember the after but show. i also remember you being i i said i don't know if i said something about your album to you and someone brought up your album cover and you just mentioned how much you hated your album cover and kind of <laughs> kind of stormed yes, off i hate that album cover <laughs> i hate that album cover i hate when they before they took the picture i said I don't want to take these pictures. And they said, oh, look, look, let's just do them. And if you don't like it, we won't use them. Oh, never believe it when they say that. Yes. Yeah. Oh, you're getting me going now. If, if you give people options, they will choose the worst option. You know what I mean? You have to be like, I mean, in that case, you don't have a lot of control. They, I they guess. wanted what they wanted and they got what they wanted. And it was not what I wanted. I am. After I had recorded uh, the second album, Favorite Love Songs, when when that album didn't come out, like I was done. I was done at that point. I was done with music, or so I thought. Probably would have been around 90, 92, 93, 94. It's Lyle Heisen from Das Domin on drums, who uh, also played on uh, the unreleased favorite love songs. But um, this was a project I had wanted to do for a long time in that Alan Licht, the guitar player Alan Licht, remains one of my all-time favorite guitar players for just the invention in his work. He brings the power of MC5, but also the genius of Sun Ra to a guitar. And I always wanted to work with him. Uh, and I had an idea for a band that would be kind of a mix of Sun Ra, MC5, but with a cheap trick pop sensibility. I was very lucky that one night, one night I got him, Lyle of Das Damen, and James McNew of Yola Tango on bass. I got all of them into a recording, well, not even a recording studio, it was rehearsal space. And I ran my tape deck. That's the only time we ever played together. But we captured 
exactly what I wanted. I, I gave them a few, I gave them a tape of a few cover songs. The only one we performed was the moves. I can hear the grass grow. Um, I love the move. I do too. Um, <laughs> the other songs uh, were more just to give them an idea of what I wanted. We we spent 90 minutes just coming up with songs on the spot, top of our heads. Like nothing was planned. Like someone would just start a riff and we would go. And uh, uh, the song I sent you is called What's on Television, uh, which is a reference to the band Television. And... Uh, it would have been a hard time picking out a song from this set, only one, except it was easy because almost every other song is 10 or 15 minutes longer than this. <laughs> and this one is 25 minutes long, or almost 25 minutes long. Uh, uh, listeners, I imagine you will get an edited version yeah. of this. <laughs> Had you done a lot of improvisation before this? Well, uh, uh, my entire career is fucking around. I mean, <laughs> that's uh, um, in uh, spring of 1989. I got a job working at Pierre Platters in Hoboken under the tutelage of the great Bill Ryan. We, we would be there opening to closing most days. End of the night, he would say, hey, Otis Ball, let me play you a record. And then he would have a story. A great man. I'll tell you, I got at least as much of a music education from him as I did from studying music theory in comp in college. Was he kind of into all kinds of music? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, he would he would tell me about uh, going to see uh, Sun Ra in these uh, little vacant storefronts in the city. Uh, 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 Roland Kirk. Um, he saw everybody. He was at Woodstock. Like he <laughs> he had a story for everybody. Then I have a bootleg of television playing at the bottom line in seventy nine. 77? I can't remember. And you can hear Bill Ryan screaming out, play me a more from the crowd. And I knew for a fact it was him. I brought it into the store and I said, Bill Ryan, <laughs> I was listening to this television bootleg. That's you. And he said, uh, yeah, it might be. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Ryan was there for all of that shit. The jazz, the rock, the country, the whole bit. Like he, like he knew his shit. That guy's an encyclopedia. Yeah, he he 
he widened my scope. And that that kind of led directly to this kind of experimental approach that you guys were taking in uh, in the eye, ear, nose, and throat. Well, well uh, for you look, anyway. I, I mean, honestly, uh, uh, this band uh, we we haven't even mentioned the name eye, ear, nose, and throat. <laughs> um, this band was specifically because uh, uh, I wanted to work with Alan Lake. I wanted to to just set the table for him so he could fly into outer space. And I think I think we succeeded. wanted this to be a band but getting all four of those guys together it, it took me i think it took me uh, over a year just to get this one rehearsal and they they were all do i mean obviously james of yola tango he's busy alan's got all his different projects and uh, so you know we, we were never able to get it together again but uh, uh i uh, uh i i hold this project as i do the ball stars uh, uh these these two one night only projects very close to my heart was this ever officially released in any way i mean is it out there for people to check out nope uh, about a year ago i tried to get it released and uh, it, it fell through and you say there's there's a few more uh, that were recorded that same night I don't know, a little over an hour worth of material. Well, like you said before about being glad you have the recordings, especially with something like that, you're glad you've got it, I bet. A, A joyous racket. This is where we get to our next little mini adventure, The Ball Stars. This was late 1996. Because I'm crazy, because I'm a lunatic, 
I decided I wanted to put a big R&B show band together. So I called my old pal, Chris Butler, asked if he would play drums. He introduced me to one of those amazing characters you only get to meet a handful of times in your life, the Reverend Jim Dillman on bass. Got Dave Dutton on keyboards, who I'd known forever, played on the second album. Uh, um, just amazing keyboard player. Uh, Larry Oakes on guitar. His wife, Meredith Oakes, on background vocals. Uh, Chris also um, introduced me to Carla Murray, who was uh, also uh, another one, one of the two background vocalists. I was able somehow to get the amazing Kurt Hoffman from The Ordinaires and They Might Be Giants to play saxophone. Yeah, and Band of Weeds is another uh, act. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. No, he's excellent. Uh, Pete, Pete Linzel, another amazing saxophone player. I think that's everyone. That's got to be kind of a dream to have. Like, I mean, I, when you're when you're singing in front of uh, a, a, like a, an apparatus that that powerful, that's just got to feel great. It, it's the one and only time that all I was was the singer. Like, I didn't pick up a guitar. I was like, <laughs> it was it was really a dream come true truly a dream come true uh we all went through our back catalog of obscure songs to pick out the set list and and i have tons of rehearsal tapes there's tons more we very very unfortunately we only played one show and uh, uh part of the reason that that might have been was our one show was Easter Sunday, <laughs> 1997. So the crowd was not very big. I had to I had to reach into my pocket uh, uh, for thirty dollars just so I could give every one of the musicians ten dollars for playing the show on Easter Sunday. <laughs> that's a, I think that's a big reason why that band didn't stick around very long. But uh, uh, I got the recording and it was a dream come true. Yeah. And they even got Rob Kennedy, Rob K of the of uh, work dogs to, to come in and uh, uh, do a guest spot on stage. Like I, in, in the back of my mind, the entire show, all I was thinking was this may be a one and done. You better appreciate this. And I was right. Yeah. I mean, you never know, but it is when something that big comes together, it does feel like, well, this is kind of an, it's an all-star show. So you kind of know it might be a special thing that you can't repeat. You know, it, 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 it was, it was one of the greatest onstage treats of my life. Here's Major Lance's monkey time.
I was going to talk to you about the kind of soul screaming. You have to really sustain a fever pitch th for this song th through this performance. What did that do to your throat? Nothing. I mean, <laughs> that's, par for the I'm, course. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a great soul screamer by any. Uh, by by any means, but I mean, you really take it on. You don't, you know, you don't, you don't fudge it in this song. You really go for it, and I think that's that's cool. Well, I mean, uh, uh, I'm I'm fine. Uh, my uh, my my vocals are competent most of the time, but uh, honestly, standing in front of that band, uh, um, there's there there was just an added confidence like it didn't it uh I, I i could not have performed any of the songs any better than i did that night for better or worse everything about this band it's amazing i go back and listen to the recordings all the time it was such a dream project to just be surrounded by so many great musicians to pick out our all-time favorite obscure R&B soul country songs and and play with them and with that well again like I said with that musical kind of heft behind it too when you're on the stage with the right group of musicians it can it can be huge and subtle at the same time you know oh i felt like i was laying in a feather bed like i i i knew that uh, they would the, i i knew they were propping me up which is Almost always the case with my bands. <laughs> um, so I, we only have one more official selection here, which which you yes. sent me. But I didn't know, like in terms of the and then part of your story, I, I know we're kind of we're kind of skipping through the the mid to late nineties. Was this period? That, yeah, that that's because <laughs> nothing was happening. Christmas come and gone But I can't take down the tree Cause there's one last gift Staring up at me This is uh, in 2003 After pretty much a decade of inactivity To go back to a uh, uh, Rob Kennedy, Rob K of Work Dogs, who I'd mentioned that guested on the Ball Star Show. Work Dogs would do all of these 
I hesitate to call them gimmick nights, uh, um, but they would have, they, they were a fun band that would try all kinds of fun things. And I went to go see them once or twice when they did live karaoke in the early nineties. And I thought, man, that's a great idea. So 2003, after, again, a decade of inactivity, I decided, you know, let me see if I can put together a live karaoke band. So I called my buddy, Sam Park, who I'd worked with at Venus Records on St. Mark's. And I said, hey, here's a crazy idea. Would you be interested? He said, yes, I'm all in. <laughs> And uh, uh, Reverend Jim from the Ball Stars was the original bass player. We went through uh, 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 two bass players until we found our our real guy. Uh, uh, not that the other two weren't real, but the the, the guy that was going <laughs> to stick a, stick around. Uh, I called my buddy Andy Nelson. Uh, to play drums and he couldn't do it, but he recommended this guy, Kevin Highland, who I called just slightly under Chris Butler as the best drummer I've ever worked with and a hell of a guy. And eventually his brother came in to fill out on bass. And uh, that band was together for a decade. Longest band I've ever had, but, but once again, I was asked to do a song for a compilation album, this time a Christmas album as an atheist Jew. All right. Look, if I'm asked to record a song for any project, I'll do it. But a Christmas album, what do I do? Then the idea just came to me. At the time, the band was myself, Kevin Hyland on drums, Sam Park on the most amazing lead guitar, and uh, Arthur Rodriguez on both bass, and we recorded it in his home studio. Um, I, I love this song. I, I was kind of going for a sort of Beach Boysy vibe. Um, I, I don't know if that came out or not, but uh, I think it does have that feel uh, of like mid '60s 
Beach Boys. It's got that kind of lonesome quality to it, you know, and that kind of like I'm a sad boy sort of thing. Like I, I spent a lot of my time in high school, you know, uh, being mad that girls didn't like me and like just going on long walks. Oh, buddy. No, I'm not saying it like that. I'm just saying that approach to like kicking rocks and being bummed. It's like I think that is kind of a mode you can go into. The Beatles wrote a lot of songs that were in that mode of like, why doesn't she like me? I, I didn't want to write a Christmas Christmas song. I mean, they've been done to death. Uh, I'm I'm sure there are more to be written in ways I would never think of, but it came to me the idea of writing a Christmas song that's not really a Christmas song in that, I mean, it's called Last Present Under the Tree, and it's about a Christmas tree still up by June or July, mm-hmm. and there's one present that the recipient has still not been around. And it's just this sad present in the summer under a tree that hasn't been taken down because someone's missing. You mentioned that band being together for about a decade. So that band was together from like, are you talking, like the 90s into the early 2000s? Kevin Highland was the one and only drummer throughout. Um, uh, but... Uh, Working band from 2003 until 2009, and then um, various uh, reunions and projects after 2009. Not not a regular band, but uh, 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 would still get together for... Uh, uh, when we were called to duty. <laughs> bands can be dormant without being broken up. And I think people, yes. that, people that are in bands understand this, that sometimes you're just not playing shows and everybody has lives. And then you go, well, but if we had a reason, we we all still like each other and we'd be back in a room as soon as we could. So I think the thing that happens in life as years go by, and I think as a listener or a fan of a band, it's hard to imagine that a band could just like not do anything together for years and not there be some reason, but it's like, no, there's really, it's just life. It's just the, uh, yeah, you, you, you summed it up better than I could have. So, I mean, obviously we've, we've talked a little bit about what's going on right now, but I am very curious about that. I mean, I know someone who writes songs like you do and works on stuff like you do, even if you're not playing guitar all the time, you have to be cooking up little ideas. Um, nope. Do you, do, nope, not at all. You have you, I don't want. Oh, that's kind of, do you feel free? <laughs> I feel free. <laughs> well, I, well, I mean, I, there is a uh, a big reunion coming up this fall, which I'm very much looking forward to. And I can't decide which I'm looking forward to more, playing with these people or just seeing and hanging out with them again. Which is such a huge part of a band or a group of people. Like, what clicks? We, the, the, you know. the, the, this giant group of people has not all been together in 30 years. Like uh, d- different parts have met up over the years here and there, but this gang, it's been 30 years and boy, uh, a whole lot of people are very excited about this. None more than myself. And just to put it in a frame of reference of the lineups we've just been talking about, which lineups is it that are going to be back together in the fall? Oh, that's the best part. <laughs> Butler Grula chains. Back together. Steve Blunt, Killer, Doug Dale, Chains. Back together. Kissy Fish. Back together. My Cousin Kenny. Back together. So you're going to be recording this, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, check YouTube come uh, October. Awesome. It, it should all be up there. 
Well, I mean, I'm excited about that notion. I, I'm right now. There's a, a you know a group of guys that I can't wait to get back in the practice pad with because of COVID. We have not been seeing each other, but like you know, you start to get that itch that you you need that uh, that interplay. As much fun as I have writing songs and recording on my own, which is a big part of what I do, there's nothing that replaces the kind of the fun you have when you find that right group. And I, I really love that you framed this conversation in light of that, because the more I thought about it, I thought, yeah, it is something that, especially as a songwriter, you really can't, you can't take for granted the idea that there are people who are willing to sort of step into your world and give themselves like completely to it, bring their talent completely to an idea that started with you. You know, um, I think it's great. And I love that that was the approach that you took uh, to this walk down memory lane. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Just to, uh, to wrap it all up as we began, um, we are recording this uh, uh, Valentine's Day uh, 2021. And uh, I couldn't be happier to have recorded this Valentine to all these people I've known and worked with and love to this day. Happy Valentine's Day, The Chains. You hear that, guys? Otis Ball Choo Choo chooses you on, on Valentine's Day. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That was Mr. Otis Ball. I, I had a blast uh, chatting with him. I hope you enjoyed listening to that. Um, just remember YouTube, search for Otis Ball. The channel that has everything we just talked about and more is right there uh, for your perusal. Thank you so much for listening to the show. And uh, yes, we're back for uh, a, a little run of episodes this spring. If you want to stay abreast of what's going on, follow us on Facebook at FYIZ Podcast by John, or you can find me on Twitter or Instagram uh, at Gianni W. That's G-I-A-N-N-I-D-U-B-Y-A. But that's it for now. Um, now, if you don't mind, I'm going to go see what I can plug into this digital delay. Digital delay.